millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 95. I am going to skip the novelist confessions this week because we have a special treat in that we have not one, but two interviews for this week's episode, which I am calling the Swedish Connection because we are speaking with Swedish to English translator Henning Kosh, who translated A Man Called Ove, which many of you will know, as well as numerous other books. And we are also speaking to Lars Kepler, the pseudonym for husband and wife team Alexandra and Alexander Anderil. So I want to get right to the interviews because they're so rich and inspiring. And we will get back to the candid novelist confessions in next week's episode. So my first guest for this week's episode is Henning Kosh. Henning Kosh is a translator from Swedish and a fiction writer. His first fiction book was a short story collection, Love Doesn't Work, in 2011, and he followed this up with a novel, The Maggot People, in 2014. Both books were published by Zank Books. Kasha's translation includes work by Hannes Rostrom, Arthur Lundqvist, Frederick Bachmann, Birgitta Stenberg, Martin Shibby, Tom Malmquist, and Anders Rydell. One of Kasha's Frederick Bachman translations was a 2015 nomination for the Goodreads Choice Awards Best Fiction. It was such a delight to speak with Henning. Um, it was a bit of an adventure. He was in a snowstorm in Sweden and I was in LA, but it was such a delightful conversation talking about the love of language and the importance of translation and how different it is to translate a work versus writing it. But still, you need to get inside the voice of the story. And it's a topic I've been fascinated with for ages. So I was so delighted he was willing to come on and so enjoyed our conversation. So I think you will enjoy this first part of our episode, um, our two-part Swedish Connection episode of the Secret Library podcast. So here we go with Henning Kosh. Hi, Henning. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, hi, Caroline. It's a pleasure. So I've, I've long wanted to talk to someone about the process of translation, because I think that language really does inform the book you end up reading, whether or not you're conscious of that as a reader. And I want to, let's start at the beginning, because I'm really interested in how you came to become a translator, given that you were lucky enough to grow up with many languages, but I'm wondering how you made that bridge into thinking of translation as work you wanted to do. Yeah. I think like a lot of the best ideas, they they suddenly come to you and uh, the, the process ends up flowing quite well. I mean, the idea of translating was not 
something I hit upon very early at all because, you know, I was really keen on uh, publishing my own work. So I was writing a lot of my own fiction and in my early 20s and not having that much luck with it. So, yeah, one morning I just, uh, my eye fell upon a book in the in the shelf and it was a book I'd read as a kid and loved and it was by a Swedish-Russian uh, writer called Yasha Golowanjuk. And I just picked it out and, and thought, I'd love to translate that. And I was lucky enough to immediately find a publisher for it. I wrote a really long outline, 30, 40 pages. And they just, they loved it and they commissioned me straight off. Wow. That was my first job. So I got lucky, basically. That's amazing. How did you pick the publisher? Uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're talking, this is 93. I was. It's quite a way back, but there, it, it was a, a UK publisher called Quartet, and uh, they were fair. Quartet was fairly well known for having an owner called Naima Tala, sort of quite eccentric, uh, very rich Middle Eastern man. Actually, he's Lebanese he, he, um, and sort of a benefactor of the arts. He also had a, a magazine called the Literary Review. And um, he absorbed a lot of losses and he was all for culture and the arts, you know. So I kind of knew about him and I I think they were my first port of call because they struck me as the sort of people who might take a risk, you know, on a new name and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, just an idea out of the blue. And they did. That's fantastic. So how was it you had this idea? I'd love to translate this book because, you know, what a shame that people outside of... Sweden haven't read it. And then how was it to actually sit down and do it? Was it was it really daunting once you said, okay, I'm going to do this? How was the process of actually translating the whole book? It was daunting. And now when I look back on it, I realized, you know, I fell into all the traps, you know, all the most obvious traps. And, and this is where you discover so much about your own character and how it operates, you know. So my the, the trap I fell into was this tendency to get a bit, uh, how can I describe it, highfalutin, sort of <laughs> mock serious, you know. Um, his tone wasn't that easy. Uh, it was quite a difficult first book to take on, you know. And I think one reviewer uh, picked it out, I think it, it was in The Spectator, picked it out as a book that was enjoyable, but... Um, with a rather leaden tone. Oh, dear. <laughs> and I think that kind of is a fair critique, you know. It, it was a bit leaden. Uh, but I learned a lot from it. And, and I don't, you know, regret it. But uh, I probably would have done it very differently today. That's, yeah, I think whenever we look back on writing that happened a long time ago, there's always changes, probably. Mm. How long did it take you to get through that first book? I think it took me uh, about four months, five months, something like that. I mean, I probably worked very slowly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can remember having an old typewriter I did it on. I didn't even have a computer, you know. I also remember the house was being redecorated. <laughs> I was renting a flat in London, so I had a guy on a ladder outside the window a lot of the time. <laughs> oh, wow. Well. Talk, talking to me through the window, which, you know, didn't exactly help my... Um, speed of working but um, it was a very interesting time and uh, um, that's when I really started getting into the translation I think as, as, a, as an activity 
I also came into contact with a wonderful um, sort of network in London called CELTA, um, which uh, is short for uh, the Swedish-English Literary Translators Association. And, uh, you know, CELTA um, was a great... And I, I do think anyone who wants to get into translation, maybe, you know, someone who's not, not tried it, that, that is a good start, trying... And it really worked for me because I met much older people who were really experienced and who were really helpful. And also we published a magazine, so I, I got the opportunity there to publish excerpts from books I liked. Uh, I, I tried a few poets, you know. So I, I could then have a crack at, you know, classic authors like Arthur Lundqvist, uh, who, who um, is a Nobel Prize winner, um, but then also more, con you know, contemporary people I liked. And it was fine. You could do, you know, three, four, five thousand words and get them into the magazine. So, you know, that's how I kind of built my, my um, skills, I guess, as a translator. So then you translated that first book. And then how did you, obviously you enjoyed it because you went on to do more. How did you then pick a project? Like at this stage... Or as you evolved through your career, how did you find the works that you wanted to translate? Did they come to you or did you continue looking for authors that you were interested in at first? I've always looked for authors I like. And, you know, um, and I can say with complete honesty that in all the years I've been a translator, have I only once uh, influenced a publisher to publish a book? Um, because almost always, uh, and, and all translators will, will back me up on this, um, you get approached and you get asked. Uh, and publishers are very, very sniffy about uh, going along with a translator's suggestion because there's a whole quite rigid system there. You know, they're listening to their scouts, they're listening to their agents. Um, and, and if you come in as a translator to say, hey, you should think about this book, you're kind of hijacking a process there and, uh, and, and it makes them very insecure. So you had no idea how much you were subverting the system with that first book? Well, I did actually. And that was actually two years ago. Oh, and not even that first book. But the first book they weren't planning to publish. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So we've got bookends. <laughs> that's <laughs> The most true. recent and the one. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the one two years ago. What happened? Well, that was Tom Malmquist. Um, in Every Moment We Are Still Alive, which has just now been published by Melville House. Yes. And that's a wonderful book. Um, I got sent that by a publisher in the UK who wanted a reader's report. Um, I loved the book. Uh, I gave a glowing report on, on that book and uh, they passed. So <gasps> then I immediately went to Scepter, uh, who'd published um, Buckman's books. I, I had done three three of Bachmann's books with them. And they picked it up pretty well straight away. They, uh, they were taken aback. It wasn't their usual way of working, but they, they, um, they, they took it on. And I think they're quite glad they did because it's, it's a really good book. Yeah, and it's gotten a lot of glowing. Uh, you're not the only one to write glowing things about it. Yeah, it's powerful. Well, it was a, that was a real, I think that for me, it's been the translation I've really enjoyed the most. Um, it was also a real challenge, you know, getting that 
that very intense opening and uh, really getting into Malmquist's pace and um, that feeling he has of being, you know, that feeling of dislocation in the hospital. Absolutely. Well, can you say a little bit about that story for people listening who may not know um, know about the book? Sure. It, it's it's an unbelievable story. It's in a sense everyone's nightmare. You know, it's a man and his and a woman. Uh, they are. She's heavily pregnant, and she's you know very close to the period when she will go into the hospital and go into labor. And uh, suddenly she's diagnosed with leukemia uh, and, uh, and she, she goes into crisis and uh, she's basically fighting for her life with uh, a healthy baby uh, in her womb. And uh, it's just, that's where the story begins. It's all true as well, although it's fictionalized. Uh, I think Malmquist would feel quite strongly about that. I mean, he is drawing on his experience, but I think I, I wouldn't like to say too much about his reasons for writing it or the degree to which he considers it uh, fic- fiction or, or, or not. Right. But it's a, it's a powerful, powerful and sort of, I don't want to say conceit because it's not, it's what happened in his life, but it's a powerful beginning for a story. And then how did it, I mean, you read the book to do the reader's report, but how does it impact you when you're translating something like that? Do you feel like you're living inside the story? And obviously it has to get inside your head and you have to find a way to bridge one language to another. How does that impact you as the translator when you're working on it? It impacts you. It's difficult to describe, but I think what happens to me anyway when I'm translating anything is uh, I suddenly kind of get into gear with a tone register language and the voice, you know, of the writer. And you get the sort of fusion of of who you are or what you're trying to do and the the writer and you 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 kind of click into a process there. It takes you a while. I actually know a translator who's, you know, quite highly regarded in the UK and uh she told me once she likes to start translating a book halfway through. Interesting. Yeah, because she says when you when you start reading a book, you need to feel, you know, drawn in straight away. And she says for her, it's more effective. Start in the middle, you know, the middle section. You can always clean it up a bit later, whatever. But if you start there and then go to the beginning, you're in, in the flow. And then you can start off on a really good note, you know. That gives you a good idea of of that process. I think that's a great idea. Do you do you find do you work primarily between Swedish and English, or do you do other languages as well? At the moment, I only work from Swedish into English. But um, I have you know I have tried other Scandinavian languages, and that's okay. But I prefer not to do it. And actually, I don't think I'm going to do it anymore. I've had a few bad experiences with it. And uh, I speak pretty good Spanish, also read in Spanish. So that would be a kind of ambition of mine, I think, to 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 start working from Spanish. But then we would probably have to go and live there for a while. Right. Uh, I think especially at the moment, there's so much fantastic fiction coming out of Spain um, and also South America, of course. 
Well, it's it's projects to have. I'm wondering how, when you sort of go from Swedish to English, do you find that the the words that you have access to in English change the tone? This is always the thing that, I mean, this is my fantasy of, you know, if I was, if I spoke the languages I spoke well enough to translate, that the the personality of a language, I feel, is they can be different from each other. And how do you work with the fact that the book was originally written in Swedish and then you're trying to carry the personality of Swedish into English, but using English words, if that makes sense? Well, it is really, it can be quite tough, especially with uh, humor. Mm. Like, uh, for instance, you mentioned earlier um, a man called Uwe. That was difficult because, for a start, Uwe doesn't exist in England. He can't exist in England. You don't, and yet he's enough of a sort of stock character, you could say, uh, for anyone in the world to recognize the grumpy old man, you know. But somehow the, the things he, he is grumpy about uh, place him in such a Swedish context. So I think the answer is you have to recognize the cultural distinctness of of the work you're translating. Uh, it's setting in a culture, in a language. And make it clear that you are actually translating something set in that culture. You're not trying to make it sound, you know, American or English. It's a, it's a, it's a real tightrope, you know, but you have to just show people and keep showing them all the time, hey, this is happening in another language. It's, it's another culture. People are like this here. And yet you have to give them enough familiarity with the language for them to feel, I'm reading a book. Um, it, 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 I, can, I can tap into this. I can be a part of this. I'll give you an example. Um, I got a job translating a play once, which ended up going to uh, Edinburgh Fringe. And um, the, the play was called Stars on the Ceiling. Uh, it was sort of a hit play in Sweden and it became a film and everything. And um, there was a company uh, called Fria Dogs Venner and they took it to Edinburgh. We sort of tried to culturally adapt that play to make it feel to a Scottish or British audience, you could say, that it could be happening in England. And that didn't work. Um, and some people who went to see it said, mm. ah, there's something strange about this. And thinking back, yeah, you can't do that. That was a big error. You know, you, you have to respect the distinctness of um, of the work. And actually, people don't mind. I mean, when you read Dostoevsky, you, you, you want it to be, to feel Russian. You know, you want it to feel very Russian. You don't mind, you know, uh, references to Russian words or, or whatever. You like that. Yes. You're reading a, a novel from Russia. So... You would hate it if you if you start you know if you saw references that that weren't Russian or if the characters started using inappropriate words or or you know do you see what I'm driving at? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think part of it is is almost that people want to feel like they're reading it in Swedish or in the original yeah. language, even though yeah, they can't. Exactly. Yeah. But the jokes, I mean, that, that's terrible. You can't um, translate it. Many of the jokes, they, they can't be translated. Uh, that's why we, over, we had to 
really edit that. We had to really rework that, you know, a lot. I don't think I've ever reworked anything that much. Um, you know, we had regular contact with the author and uh, with the agent and because we, we knew we were pushing pretty hard, but there was no, no other way of doing it. I mean, you, you, the, I mean, by definition, a joke has to be funny, to, you know, and not puzzling. <laughs> so, you know, that was, we had to do that. Right. That, I didn't even think of that as a challenge, but it, of course it makes sense. And the cultural references, I think, are fascinating. I mean, I, I particularly am fascinated by this sort of obsession that we see internationally with Swedish culture that's happening, particularly in literature. I mean, I think, uh, you know, prior to the girl with the uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo, there was still there. But since then, there's been this kind of Swedish noir, Nordic noir, like everybody wants to watch, you know, crime shows from Sweden. And, and as a big fan of Braun, I have to say, as an aside, I am so jealous that you you all get to watch it and they haven't translated into English yet, um, the latest season. But there is this kind of love from the English-speaking world for the Swedish world. And how is that perceived sort of on the Swedish side? Is everyone mystified by this sort of desire to consume as much Swedish literature as possible? Or are they thrilled? Or or how does that come across? Well, the Swedish publishers, of course, love it. Uh, oh, I'm sure. They've... they've um... They've been riding that wave for a while now, but I think more and more and more, and and also film film industry has really sort of monetized itself here now, and a lot of the bigger film companies are are being bought up by international companies, and you know making. So it's it's an industry, you know, it's a mixed bag. There are some really good, interesting writers coming out of that, but there are also some literary writers who maybe are not having great sales and they just end up tapping into it for some easy earnings. It's a big subject that. Uh, yeah. Some people are critical. You know, some book people, literary people are critical, of course. They're saying, hey, you know, we have a broader literary culture than this. But on the other hand, you know, if it, if it helps publishers... Um, and I guess it's good for all writers. I think that's a perpetual struggle, though, is that <clears throat> things get reduced to types or that, you know, people want to read a particular kind. I mean, people like crime fiction, no matter what culture it comes from. But that, yes, that what are we missing? What voices are we missing that maybe aren't as easy to sell or aren't as easy to place? I think, mm. I think that is an important question. And it's very puzzling that it should have, you know, that crime writing should have come from here. I'm in a place where, you know, I go out and I don't really lock the door, you know. <laughs> I have, you know, there are no crimes here, as far as I can see. Literally, literally. Where I live, for example, typical Swedish small place. I don't have to lock my door. I could. I, I don't even lock my car. It's parked outside. Sometimes I leave the key in, in, in there all day. I don't even think about it. No, no one will come and steal my car. But And yet... When I go down to bookshop, it's just full of these crime stories. I, maybe Swedes, they enjoy it. You know, it's a bit of excitement. Uh, but it doesn't really reflect the society very much. Of course, we have a few crime hotspots, you know, Malmö and Stockholm, but really it's pretty, 
pretty light. Yeah, that's true. It's almost like there's this, um, it feels almost sort of like a Jung, a Carl Jung phenomenon of you've exercised all of your urges towards crime yeah, into literature, yeah, it, so it doesn't yeah. need to play out in society. It, 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 is, it is like that. So you started in your 20s working on all of your own literature, and you have since published your own work. So how is how is all of the, the translation work playing out as you're working on your own books and your own writing? Yeah, basically, I, I have to keep them completely separate. Um, if I'm translating, I don't do any writing whatsoever. Uh, if I'm doing writing, I don't do any translating whatsoever. Um, so, for example, this year... We were down. Um, we we. I, I often go down to Sardinia in the Mediterranean to write because I used to live there and now I have a young family. We go out there and and this year I decided I'm going to finish my novel this year. So uh, I didn't take any translation work for seven eight months and I just did my. Um, I worked on that and I finished a new novel. Um, and I couldn't really have combined that with translation because it's all writing. And I do think translators are writers, but the discipline is so different. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it does feel quite distinct to me anyway. The process uh, can't really be compared. No, I think I can see where, you know, you're, you're working with language just as intensely, but you're just not coming up with the the plot and the story and the characters, but you still have to sort of take it in and then put it back out, which is a whole different process rather than generating the story from the beginning. Is that accurate or is that completely off? No, I think that's pretty accurate. It's a bit like, uh, I think being a translator is a bit like being a studio musician mm. and, and being called in and then the band says, we need, you know, we need a a kind of a, a couple of licks here, sort of like that. Can you play it like that? Yeah, okay. So, you know, and then you just play those licks and and that's it. You've done your job. It's, it takes the skill to do it, you know. Right. I think a lot of translators are really skilled writers, but they, they're sort of playing, they're playing to a script, let's say. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, there's that movie, um, 20 Feet from Stardom. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's all about uh -huh. um, exactly that, like background singers and how their process is just as disciplined as anyone else's, but yeah. people don't yeah. necessarily see them because they're working in the background. I love that comparison. So, uh, it's no, go ahead. No, go on. I, no, I was, I was going to ask more about your novel. Yeah. So how so you did you finish it and and you've been working in Sardinia how wonderful I, I finished it yeah it's finished and uh, um, you know I, I was publishing with Zank before Zank Books uh, based in Ann Arbor and so I published my short stories uh, Love Doesn't Work those are called very uplifting <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then I published a novel which was a bit experimental, called The Maggot People, also with Zank. But now I'm, you know, Zank have uh, got all, all new editors now and, uh, you know, I feel they're a good publisher. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of going out talking to some agents now. Um, I've written this novel about, you know, I don't know if you want me to go into the... I'd uh, love to, if you're, if, you're, if you're willing to. Well... I'm not. I've never been a great pitcher. I don't want to feel I'm trying to pitch here <laughs> with your, <laughs> with, your um, 
on your podcast. No, we want to hear about it. I would love to hear about it. <sighs> yeah, it's it's basically about uh, a sort of late middle aged guy, maybe a bit a bit like me, who who has a son who has a quite a serious or oh, very serious climbing accident and sort of ends up oh. in a coma. And it's the story of this man and uh, also the mother of the young guy and how – see, I'm making it sound so depressing. Uh, he, he, um, he finds this stone in the forest and he sort of has mm. a, a, a small clot in his brain and he ends up going into a care home. And then he just – all he wants to talk about after that is the world he sees inside this stone. And so the wife, Rebecca – she starts to visit her husband in the in the place, and she starts keeping a blog based on his all these stories. They're pretty fantastical stories. And uh, yeah, the novel is basically a story of it's a sort of a story of the blog she writes and, and the sort of adventures she has, getting um, the blog published, and uh, you know, finding a a young local entrepreneur who is into blogging and into the whole business of blogging. So it's a sort of meta. It's got a bit of meta, you know, talking about the arts and talking about culture and and so on. Um, it sounds wonderful. Yeah, it, was, it was great to write and, you know, I've been planning it for a long time. But, you know, I uh, like I say, it, it takes me much longer than, I, than, than it should to write novels now because well, I have a young family and, I, you know, I'm quite busy. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I have to try and find these little windows and I have to create them, you know. I, you know, I already have my next book sort of more or less plotted, you know. And I guess I'll, I'll just do another mad rush at some point. I mean, I think to, for me to write a, a novel takes maybe a year and a half uh, altogether, two maybe. I think, it, I think it takes, everyone always says, I mean, and speaking to people who've written novels, there's always this sense of, I wish it didn't take me so long. Yeah. But it seems that that's sort of the minimum to get it down, you know, if you really, if you really want to get it done the way that you want. And I wonder if having this pressure of finding these pockets, does that help? Because then you get to plan the thing in advance a bit. And then you're waiting and kind of building up all of this steam. And then you have this window where you can finally let it out and write. Does that help your process? Yeah. Uh, that's very true, actually. I mean, I had so many notes by the time I sat down and I sort of structured things pretty carefully and, uh, you know, I had a lot of dialogue written down. And so I really just felt, you know, like a berserker, you know, going in there, you know, <laughs> my, my battle axe is held up and, you know, I wasn't going to stop until it was done. That's so, that's so great. Yeah. And you, and you do have to think about things, you know, it's not just writing, it's, you know, Maybe you're, you're thinking about something for a year or two, maybe, you know, and then suddenly you think, hey, I could write that. And then you start thinking about that. So maybe, you know, the whole process is like that. So I think so. I think there has to be this point when it, it shifts from something you're sort of pondering and, and wondering about to something that's actually going to go down. Like, oh, yes, because there's all these ideas that float through and it's like, mm, maybe, and then they go away. But the ones that don't mm. leave and just keep on insisting, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, are the ones that end up getting written down. And so you finished this one and you already have another one plotted out, you said? Well, I wouldn't say plotted out, but yeah, I've, I've got... But it's 
is present. present. I've always wanted to write a travel book. I mean, a travel novel, if you like. And so uh, I figured now's the time I should do it, you know, because I traveled quite a bit when I was, you know, a bit younger. And, uh, you know, I traveled, I did one particular trip to Venezuela and the Dutch Antilles and up towards Colombia. And so much happened on that trip. So I would love to write about it. That sounds fantastic. Mm, yeah. Also, I think the beauty of writing books that are set in other places is the excuse to travel more. Well, I'd love to. I mean, like I say, I've got two kids now. One is only two. And so... Uh, so that's a bit tricky. Uh, you can do, you can do, you can do little trips, you know, um, but, you know, it's difficult to stay away for a longer period unless you, you know, base yourself somewhere and everyone comes over and that can also work fine, you know. I've, I've had a lot of opportunities to travel, so I'm, I'm not so worried about it. But yeah, sure, I, it would be great to, uh, and also branch into nonfiction, you know, uh, would also, would also yeah. be really interesting. So I'm curious about, do you ever think of translating your own work or is that something that people just don't do? You, I think you can, but I don't actually feel that comfortable writing directly in Swedish. You know, I'm working on it. Um, mm. It sounds odd, you know, I am bilingual and from a totally Swedish family. But I think, I do think most translators prefer to, to work one way, you know. Um, and be because I grew up in England and because I always wrote in English, it's kind of more my native language than Swedish. And 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 the other thing is that speaking skills, reading skills and writing skills are all, you know, distinct in, in the brain. So, you know, while I can sit down with a Swedish book written in very intricate language and read it and understand absolutely everything and get a real feeling for the beauty of the language, you know, I couldn't sit down and write that language um, in Swedish because it's a, it's a different part of my brain. So, I, I, you know, to produce right. language is different from absorbing it. Most people don't translate their own work the ones that do tend to need to hire an editor later later because <laughs> it's so hard to to you know very few people have that totally in interchangeable skill with with language yeah i would think it would be you'd be so close to it and it would be in some ways you would think you know if i wanted to if i wanted to have written it in swedish i would have written it in swedish in the first place yeah but sometimes it does it is quite annoying to, to look at the book market here and think how you'd love to, you know, submit something you've written in English. But, um, you know, like I say, very few people have done it. I mean, you're, you're talking some real, you know, Nabokov did it. Right. But, you know, that's, you know, that's Nabokov. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think also if you if you've sort of had this pent-up need to write one novel and you've already got one kind of building, then 
you know, and you really have to set aside translation in order to write, I can see why you wouldn't want to spend more time on a book that you've already finished and said, I've finished it. Now I want to move on to this next thing that's building rather than, you know, revisiting the whole thing to do it as a translation project. Because with translation, you get to visit other books. That's really true. I hadn't thought about that, but that's probably in practice. That's probably very much how it works. Yeah. I I wouldn't want to sit down and translate my own book because it's... uh, not a useful sort of way to spend time. But would you would you think about submitting it to be translated and for other people to send into Sweden? Or do you feel like it's okay that it lives in English and it's okay that it stays where it is? It's okay, but it's a pity that I do. The longer I work, uh, as, you know, in translation and writing, the more I feel that, the f- I mean, publishing is quite rigid. The whole system, it's a really elaborate, rigid system. And um, Swedish publishers... Although there are lots of grants available and they could, in theory, take on, for example, a new book, an unpublished book in English, if they like it, and get a grant to have it translated and put it out there, they somehow don't want to go there. Um, just as, you know, Swedish agents, uh, I you know, I know all the agents here because, you know, I work for them. But right. They, 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 they just don't want to take anything in English. Hmm. So there's a rigidity in the system. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, I mean, I can sort of, if I was to put myself in that mindset and as an outsider, but English is so pervasive. I could see a sense of, well, we want to, we want to do things that are from, you know, the inside of the country. But I mean, it is also nice to be able to read things in translation. I also think that, you know, everyone in Sweden seems to speak better English than I do. So the sense is, well, people probably don't, do they need it in Swedish, maybe? Yeah, that, 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 that's also an issue. I mean, you're almost getting to a point now with nonfiction, especially uh, the people who are reading nonfiction could just as well read in English. But then, you know, then you get into the whole argument of what is a language then, a small language, a minor, you know, a fairly minor language like Swedish. If we're we're not careful, we'll just end up uh, cancelling out our own own literary culture, you know, because um, it's important. It's important to hear, to to keep publishing books in Swedish. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is one thing that I have felt deeply ambivalent about someone who is English as a native language is that it, for whatever reason, has ended up being the one that people talk even as intermediary languages between other places where the language is so difficult, like business people in Asia, you know, learning English to talk to each other. And I worry about the loss of other language and what does it mean? um, You know, what does it mean when, when it becomes easier to speak in one language versus another and what happens to the culture that's, that's left behind if you, if you ignore those other languages? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, uh, I mean, in Europe, I don't know how it works in the States. I mean, here in Europe, we've got the EU, they've got like quite a big cultural program and, you know, there are lots of grants available for translation, especially, you know, the minor sort of language languages of, of the EU, like uh, the Baltic states and uh, Scandinavian countries by population, you know. Um, so we can, we can maintain it all here. That's great. Yeah. We are, we are sad. <laughs> we are sadly lacking, I think, in our um, 
just because the country is so large, you know, and, and the only border we have with another language is with Mexico. You know, we're not really dealing with a, a language barrier, obviously, with Canada. So I think people get very um, set in their ways and they're not as interested in learning other languages. I mean, I learned languages in school and I loved them and it was a great passion of mine. And whenever I speak French or German in Europe, they're, they, they ask like nine countries mm -hmm. as to where I'm from before yeah. they ask, and I identify myself as American and they freak mm -hmm. out. They're like, what? Mm -hmm. That's impossible. Because we're just not, we're not great about it. And um, it's, it's a great, um, I think, it's a disappointment to me that we don't have more investment in that here. But it does seem as a, you know, as a European who, who's doing more and more in the States, it does seem like there's this wave of interest in translation. And uh, I don't know if that's correct. It does seem that that's great. to me anyway. A, a lot of, you know, you've got so many great magazines, online magazines that are dedicated to translation. Malmquist, for example, he's, there's an interest in the whole translation process there, which, you know, and this, even this, this, this uh, podcast you're doing about translation. I'm glad that makes me feel, that makes me feel optimistic because I think it is important. It's important both to, um, respect the language, but also that people read stories that are different, more different than their own. I think when you live in a country like the U.S. where, you know, the same language pervades the whole country um, in many ways, there there are so many languages, other languages spoken here, but we don't necessarily read in them. Um, and I think that it's wonderful when you do read things in translation and you read places, uh, stories from other countries and other cultures, because it it opens up your awareness of what people are like and how they live all over the world that's different. I think that's something important to remember. Well, I'm so grateful that we got to speak today and <clears throat> overcome international lines and, and technology and all kinds of adventures to record this conversation. And thank you so much for coming on and, and talking about this topic. It's really been a joy speaking with you. Arlene, it's a pleasure. My second guest for this episode is Lars Kepler. And there was a period when no one knew who was behind the pseudonym Lars Kepler. They only knew that it was a pseudonym. But now we know that it is the husband and wife team, Alexandra Coelho Anderil and Alexander Anderil. They are the authors of the Juna Lina series, and they have written six installments to date together, and the series has sold 12 million copies in 40 different languages. They were both established writers before they adopted the pen name Lars Kepler and have each published several acclaimed novels on their own. Alexander grew up 20 kilometers north of Stockholm, and he's always been an avid reader, but wanted to be a painter in his youth. For many years, he produced big oil paintings inspired by Caravaggio. He practiced Muay Thai and was accepted into a ranger unit, moved to central Stockholm, and studied philosophy, religion, and film at university. His first novel was picked up when he was only 19, and before he began writing as Lars Kepler, he had already penned nine novels, 20 theater plays, and one opera libretto. Alexandra grew up in southern Sweden, and she discovered early on that she wanted to become an actress and attended the National Academy of Mime and Acting in Stockholm. She thereafter got a master's degree in literary science, was hired as a PhD student at university, and began writing a dissertation on the Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa. 
She produced three historical novels before she began writing together with Alexander under Lars Kepler. I adored this conversation um, with Alexandra and Alexander because it was so amazing to me to think of how they were able to create this independent identity of Lars Kepler, who became such a success before anyone knew who it was. And actually, at one point, um, people thought it was Henning Mankell. And both the publisher and Henning Mankell himself categorically denied that this was the fact. So I really loved talking to them about the process of creating together versus writing alone, which is what so much of writing often is for everyone. And this provided um, a really sweet story about how they work together and how much they love writing together, which is infectious and very obvious, as you'll see from the conversation. Um, I really loved the book as well. And it is called The Sandman. And hopefully, if we're lucky, it looks like their entire series will be coming to us in English. So I know you're going to love this conversation as much as I did. So here we go with Lars Kepler, Alexandra, and Alexander. Okay, I'm very excited to have team Lars Kepler with us on the show today. Thank you both so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. So you were both... Um, successful novelists independently before you decided to collaborate. So I am so interested. I want to dive into the book specifically, but I'm really interested to hear about how you decided to work together and and write together under Lars Kepler and how that process has been. Because obviously this isn't the only book you've written together. There have been a number of them, so oh, yeah. it appears to be going well. So I'd love to hear about how you decided to do that and and what your process is like working together. Oh, um, well, fundamentally, it's, it's very lonely to be a writer because you, you don't know, you know that you can't let anyone else, you know, you know what you're doing until it's finished. Because if you do, you might lose this, you know, spark you need for this specific story. Um, I don't know why, it, why but, but, but you can ask almost any writer. So... Because of that, we had this dream of, uh, of collaboration to find a way, you know, to, to sidestep uh, the solitude aspects of, of writing. Yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't as easy as we thought <laughs> to bring together two writers. We love each other, and we have been married for many years. We have three daughters. We thought it would be piece of cake, but uh, actually. Um, yeah, we can laugh at it now, but we had a lot of failed, uh, failed attempts before before we found the key to collaboration. We actually started. Well, started. What was the key? I must know the key. Well, yeah, the, the, the key, key the, was the third author, yeah. Lars Kepler. We tried to write a children's book, but we just started to argue, and Alexander became so grouchy. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> and then we tried to write a play because that would be easy. We thought I had been an actress for yeah. many years. Alexander had written many plays for the theater, but it wasn't until until we invented Lars Kepler that we could bring our styles together into a totally new author. And it sounds maybe silly, but. We managed to trick ourselves in some way when we created this third author. So, so since then, 
we don't argue. We are just so happy, and yeah, we have this. It's like a creative flow. We, we call it a jazz session, like we're jamming. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you have a sense of who Lars Kepler is as a person? Like, no. do you picture him, or oh yeah, <laughs> like what he wears and what he does with his time? Like, does he have a whole identity? He has a whole identity yeah, and, and, <laughs> and habits and all things. Yeah, he used to he used to be a teacher, and uh, then um, a personal tragedy made him a very lonely and shy person, and um, all these stories came to him. So he nowadays he works nights at. Um, Hostel for homeless, and then he writes all day long. That's that's his <laughs> biography, in a way. I love it. I love it. That's so wonderful. I think it's almost like your novelists writing the novel of Lars Kepler, who's then writing the books. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. I, I think, actually, uh, that, that's why why it works for us. <laughs> that's amazing because it's. I mean, the voice is so seamless. It's it's always fascinating to me to think about collaborating. So. If you don't mind, everyone listening writes, so they're very curious, I would assume. Um, I will speak for them. That's my job. Um, in how you actually do, do each of you say, oh, I'd like to write that chapter, and then the other one goes in and reads it? Or how do you make it? Because it, it does not appear, I mean, it feels like Lars Kepler has been to his, his job in the evening, <laughs> and then he writes, and it feels like just one person writing the whole story. That's, wow. That makes us very happy to hear, because... We, we want to have one tone, a specific Kepler tone. But, it, but it's a pretty long process. It starts with the idea, of course. The idea is important. We always find our ideas through conversations. We talk about what we fear and yeah. you know, moral dilemmas and so forth. And suddenly we have heart of a story. And then we start with a plot. And we uh, write hundreds of notes with all the different scenes yeah. and then we put uh, these notes on a wall uh, so we can overview the plot and we start to what we say dream up the story uh, so not until we have the plot completed we sit down uh, in front of our computers and start to write and then we write uh, the scenes we want to write from the plot and and after a while we email them to each other so we sit side by side and emailing uh, our texts to each other and we're filling gaps and changing uh, things uh, and um, the email forward and backward to each other and um, then, then after a while when a book is finished we, we don't know who wrote what because there's not a single sentence in it that only one of us has written alone and that's when we say that it's the work of Lars yeah. Kepler <laughs> that's amazing I love that <laughs> yeah it's I think this work this thing with the notes on the wall uh, and having the plot um, clear in every detail, it's so crucial for us because when we start to write, the story comes alive in a certain way. Yeah, and that, that's a magical moment. Yeah. And then you have to follow the characters. Yeah. So, so it's both uh, disciplined with a detailed plot, but, but then... You have to follow, and that there comes the jazz in. Yeah, <laughs> the jazz session. Yeah, we. we, we I don't know if this is understandable. <laughs> 
It absolutely is. It's great. <laughs> it sounds wonderful because it's true. You do, when you sit down to write, you fundamentally sit down to write alone. And I think that's what becomes very discouraging for lots of people is you spend so much time, as you say, working on a project mm-hmm. and people may ask about it and say, oh, how's it going in there? And you say, oh, you know, I'll get back to you in six months. Yeah, or exactly, exactly. I'm sorry, I can't tell you anything about what I'm writing because then my story will disappear. Mm-hmm. So, uh, no, so... Have, haven't taken down this wall of loneliness. Is mm. it's actually the most enjoyable thing we've ever done. It's fantastic for us this mm. collaboration. I love it. So let's let's talk a little bit about the Sandman, um, mm-hmm. which I I started reading um, late at night, which was probably <laughs> a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> and my husband was already asleep, and I was there reading the book, and I was like, "Oh, this is really scary." And, uh, you know, which I'm sure was the intention. And um, it, it, the other thing you did that I thought was very smart was the chapters are very short. So you keep saying, oh, I'll just read a little bit more. Oh, maybe just a little bit more. And then I woke up in the morning and I was like, mm, I could read just a little bit more. And you just, it's very difficult to put down, not only because the story is so good, but because you're like, well, it's just another page or two. You know, I could read a little bit more. Was that on purpose? Oh, oh well. Yeah, we want to write as exciting as possible. And um, I think there is a certain rhythm in the book mm. that needs these chapters. It's and also... A- we we enjoy page turners ourselves to read page turners. And, um, and short chapters works for us. So Yeah. I, don't, I thought I, it worked really every, well. Every book has its certain... Uh, rhythms, yeah, tone, and for us, crime fiction looks like this. Yeah, our at least. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think also there are so many um, threads going on that the nice thing is you kind of keep visiting different aspects of the story and what's happening here and what's happening over here, and because you know you have different people in very different locations, but all working on the same kind of case. Mm. Yeah, we 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 want to. Um, that's that's also why we work with these notes on the wall and everything because we want to have as many turning points as possible. We we want to create a roller coaster for the readers because I think reading and writing is very similar to us when we when we write our books. We we sit there. Our hearts pounding, we cry. We have to get, get away to, from the computer yes. a while and <laughs> breathe, and you know. So it's a very physical experience as well. Um, it's that's why I think we love these stories. They are filled with our own personal fear, but we also ha- have this guarantee that we will take you out of there. We will solve the crime. I think I wondered. I mean. How was it to come up with someone like, I'm probably going to pronounce his name wrong, Yurik Walter? Yurik Walter. I mean, oh, so terrifying. Yeah, I know. I know. Oh. We, we, we did a lot of research about serial killers and we focused on... We talked to, you know, psychiatrists and... Oh, I thought you were going to say you talked to serial no, killers. No, I was no. like, wow, that is dedication. No, we talked to, to uh, psychiatrists, criminologists, police officers and... Uh, and then we uh, we focused on uh, those who seemed to be intelligent and who communicated and had strategies. Right. Mm. Um, and then we 
used this research, um, we used it uh, towards our own fear, our deepest fear. We let it interlace somehow with um, with the fear and reality. And then Jorik Walter was born. And actually, he's so terrifying that I had nightmares almost every night during the writing process. I dreamt that he was after us. <laughs> so... I'm not surprised. I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised if he would leap out of the book and come after you. I mean, he's pretty, pretty intense and pretty clever and pretty, like, unable to be contained. Yes, he is pretty intense. I think empathy is the most important thing for us when we write. And that comes, you have to understand each character in a book and that even... The worst, Walter, yes. the worst ones, yes, because he has his own logic, and you have to feel for him, even though you don't. You, you, don't, don't, ag- ag- you don't agree with his methods, of course, but 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 you, as a writer and even as a reader, you have to understand him. Yeah, because um, describing a person just like a monster—that's that was never really interesting for us. We wanted to know why and how he became this serial killer, what has happened to Yurik Walter. And that's more terrifying for us. We always want to, the reader and ourselves to be able to understand the motives because in real life, you never get the answers. But in, yeah, no. I think that's important for crime fiction to, to yeah. That, that you have the answers because definitely it's, it's it's always starts with chaos. It's it's a journey from chaos to order. I think for us crime fiction, so it starts with with this horrifying villain, but it must end with answers. Uh, the mystery must get it's solved, solved yeah. yeah, and so so forth. So it's always a journey from chaos to order, and that's the entertaining part because it's a scary story but it's entertaining because it ends in order. That's where we believe anything in a way. Well, I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to come on the show and talk about the book and to talk about, um, to talk about Norwegian crime or Norwegian Swedish crime and, and Scandinavian crime and, and the Sandman and the amazing process that you have writing together. Thank you for listening to the secret library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.